The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Welcome to a good football show's week three recap podcast. Going to be going through all of the games here, adding that additional context beyond the box score, talking to everyone from the NBC Sports Edge team who covered the games for us in just a minute. Before we do, right off the top here, I did want to say that the fantasy football community lost someone very special this week. Mike Taglier passed away and want to offer our deepest condolences from everyone here just a terrible tragedy, and let our listeners know that there is information on how you can help Mike's family on the Fantasy Pros Twitter account. So if you'd like to see you know, how you can help, they've set up an account there, and I did just want to let everyone know about that and just say how, how terrible this is and what, you know, what a tragedy it is um, that, that Mike passed away too soon, and, and he was a very special person to so many people in the community left a huge impact. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the games from week three of the NFL season. The Cardinals defeated the Jaguars 31-19. to Chris Allen, I believe that the Jaguars were ahead in this game at one point. Not what we expected. Uh, what, was, what was it like watching this game? It was actually kind of bizarre watching this game live and trying to figure out what was happening because the entire, I would say for the most part, most of the early games, that first half was just ugly. And Arizona and Jacksonville was absolutely no different. We thought with this game, like coming into this game, both of those teams fairly well above like a league average in terms of neutral pace. So we were expecting a tons of plays, passing yards, so on and so forth. 13 to seven at the end of the at the end of the first half, we weren't really seeing much from Kyler Murray, minus like the one yard, like a uh, short touchdown that he that he ran in. So I was expecting or I was somewhat concerned for that entire game environment. When if you look at the Cardinals side, it was Max Williams was leading the team in terms of targets or at least tied for the uh, for the lead. And we're not really and both offenses were calling relatively conservative offenses, like fairly close in terms of neutral passing rate for both teams. So 
unless something were to like significantly change in the second half, we were going to get something of a boring game, which of course it turned out to be one of those, not necessarily a barn burner, but the Cardinals took off literally wound up having a ton of scoring like there in the second half. Kyler opens it up. We see another, uh, another hundred yard receiving game for AJ green. So I think for the most part, the Cardinals were able to at least give us the production that we expected from them, but it was just Jacksonville that kind of came up short. Yeah, and it's a pretty crazy game. We had a pick six in this game. Uh, Lawrence threw a pick six. We also had uh, Cliff Kingsbury very excited to have the longest field goal ever on on the record for him. Did not work out that way. Instead, they attempted a field goal that I believe would have been 68 yards or yeah, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. And instead, it was caught like a like a kickoff return, returned 109 yards by the Jaguars. So pretty wild game uh, with the uh, defense and special teams plays. Oh, yeah. And like if anybody listened to that one live and listened to Gus Johnson, like calling that run back, I mean, absolutely wild. I think it was probably like the most excitement, at least at that point in the early games. So it actually was like hilarious to actually go back and listen to it again. So if anybody gets a chance, like go ahead and check it out. And yeah, that that. Pick six from Trevor Lawrence was just honestly one of the ugliest passes. It was, it was like a flea flicker with Trevor Lawrence attempting a jump pass like down the right sideline and which turns into a pick six. I think after now three weeks, what, at least one interception in each game now for Trevor Lawrence. I'm actually somewhat concerned for the, for most folks, the rookie 101, depending on like what type of uh, format that you're playing in. But I mean, from EPA per play standpoint, I believe he's 30th amongst all quarterbacks. I mean, the entire rookie class, don't get me wrong, from a quarterback perspective, none of them are doing well. And I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about Mac Jones here in just a little bit. But I think with Trevor Lawrence in particular, I think we can kind of explain away or contextualize some of his production so far with just what he's being asked to do. The Jaguars, for as much as they've been, uh, for as much as they've been in terms of uh, negative game scripts, him being asked to pass downfield to Marvin Jones, DJ Chark, and essentially running some of those schemes or passing some of those plays that we know to be 50-50 plays in and of themselves, but being asked to do them so frequently in these games because they wind up falling behind is really what I think can at least give us some sort of pause before we just look at the box scores, see the interceptions, and just assume that Trevor Lawrence is bad. I think, but the one thing that I am the most concerned about is the lack of rushing. We've only seen just a few scrambles from him in, in, uh, in these uh, just these few short weeks. And without that added element to his game, I'm just wondering how the Jaguars are going to continue to produce on a week-to-week -week basis. I mean, with Carlos Hyde still being involved, James Robinson finally taking over that backfield, or at least seeing the majority of the touches like we expected. But other than that, there's really not a lot popping for that offense like we expected it to. Yeah, looking at the box score, James Robinson really jumps out as maybe the, the lone, like, true bright spot. 15 carries, 88 yards, and a touchdown. And then through the air, six targets, six receptions, and another 46 yards. So that's pretty nice, given that there were some concerns. I saw um, Carlos Hyde getting used near the goal line. He had eight for 44. So it's not like he's gone away. But if Robinson's going to have that kind of involvement in the receiving game, that's pretty exciting, right? Right. And uh, 
especially since we talked earlier about just that first half being just a complete mess for both teams. I mean, Carlos Hyde through the first half, he was playing on 50% of the snaps, running a route on 42% of Trevor Lawrence's dropbacks. So I was concerned, like, watching that for the first two quarters of the game. But then we see that completely oscillate back towards James Robinson in the second half. We see his snaps, his targets, his total touches pick up there in the second half. And I believe all is well, but just again, with Urban Meyer essentially like calling the shots, we don't know how that's going to change on a week-to-week basis. But hopefully after James Robinson, he gets the touchdown. We see his uses in the passing game. The message will at least be sent to Urban that, hey, like you actually have the better of the two backs, the one that's producing the most right there in James Robinson. So maybe that'll continue moving forward. On the Jacksonville side in the receiving game um, with the wide receivers, it doesn't seem like that there's too much to take from this. DJ Shark got in the end zone. LaVisca Chenault went 4 for 48 on four targets. Marvin Jones had 6 for 62 on eight. Kind of the same roles in pecking order that we're used to here. Yeah, exactly. And without, I know most folks were expecting Marvin Jones to get into the end zone again, but even though he didn't fall into the paint, he does wind up leading the leading the team in targets as we expected. Chark is the one with the long touchdown. I think in it, in and of itself, like you mentioned, Pat, from a role perspective for each of the each of those wide receivers, they are kind of as advertised with Chenault getting some of the shorter targets, both Chark and Jones getting some of those downfield targets. And it's just, we're going to have to try and figure out on a week-to-week basis who the one is going to be that winds up getting a touchdown pass. What do you make of the backfield split on the Arizona side? 11 carries for Connor and 11 carries for Chase Edmonds. Connor gets in the end zone twice. Was this just because the Cardinals were up uh, by a fair amount late in the game? Part of it, uh, but also we saw a little bit more usage from James Conner in the passing game. His routes run like per drop back uh, had a saw a slight tick up this week to about like 20, 22 percent of Kyler Murray's uh, dropbacks this week. So not to say that it's going to be a complete ding to chase Edmonds value moving forward. But for those folks that, you know, had drafted him in best ball and were kind of looking for that kind of role. I mean, he got those short touchdowns that we expected him to get throughout the offseason. Now, will that be the same? Uh, will be that will that be the case moving forward? I don't think so, but at least I think it is a positive takeaway for those folks that have James Conner as, like, let's say their RB2, RB3 guy sitting on their bench who might be looking to use him as a flex play in the coming weeks. Did you have route numbers for the uh, Carolina, or not Carolina, Arizona wide receivers? Um, I asked because Hopkins, you know, I assume Hopkins is out there basically every route, but Rondell Moore and Hopkins only combined for five catches for 22 yards. Both guys very quiet. Rondell Moore. Um, was someone that had been really exciting over the last few weeks, disappointed in a big way here. Was he not as involved this week? Yes, and that was one of the big takeaways, at least for me, from Arizona's passing game. Because coming into this week with DeAndre Hopkins, what he logged, what like was two missed practices, and I think a limited practice, if I remember correctly, coming into week three. So we figured that this would be a, another chance for Rondell Moore to step up in the passing game. If anything, we saw just more from Christian Kirk. We saw more from A.J. Green. Rondell Moore himself, he only ran a route on 6% of uh, uh, 6% of Kyler Murray's dropbacks this week, which is a huge drop-off from last week. He went from 33% in week one, 36% in week two, all the way down to 6% this week. I'm not sure what the deal was regarding his usage this week, especially with DeAndre Hopkins coming in banged up. So that's something concerning. We'll have to take a look uh, more uh uh, take a step back and kind of look at what to expect of the of this rookie moving forward. Because I thought after week two, his role was going to be solidified, but now they Cliff Kingsbury went back to Christian Kirk here in week three. So I don't know what to make of that uh, that uh, that entire pass catching group moving forward. 
All right, that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Pretty shocking result there. Let's move to the other game that you covered for us. Uh, the, New, the New Orleans Saints defeated the New England Patriots here 28-13. to 13. Uh, How did this one go down, Chris? So this is another one where I'm just more concerned about both passing games in general. I mean, if you look at, let's just start off with the Saints. Again, Jameis Winston coming into the season, we thought like once he got that starting role, okay, cool. Like we know the type of passer that Jameis is. Even if we have some concerns about the weapons, whether it be Deontay Harris, whether it be Marcus Calloway, at least he's got Alvin Kamara. At least we have at least some confidence in Adam Troutman, but we haven't really seen any of that. Jameis Winston is yet to have a game where he has more than 22 pass attempts. Now, I get that in uh, in week one, he was mostly set up with a lot of those short fields because Green Bay's offense was horrible. But now here in this game, even though they had multiple chances to drive down the field, which they did. I mean, they had at least three to four uh, drives with like 12 to 13 plus plays in them. But yet Jameis Winston still just 20 to 21 passes in this particular game. I mean, he winds up actually, while he didn't have the same mistakes as he had against Carolina last week, he still wound up having just one of those like just classic Jameis touchdowns where he's got, I think it was a Kyle Duggar, I think like uh, hanging off his back. He just winds up chucking up into the end zone and Marquez Calloway comes down with it in order to save both of their days and from a fantasy perspective. So moving forward. I'm not as bullish on the Saints passing game just because we haven't really seen the volume that we typically tend to like we expect like from them, especially for a guy like Jameis. We're expecting just those deep passes. Haven't really seen a lot from him in that department either. Now, they are playing the Giants next week, which if Matt Ryan had any sense of aggression or wanted to push the ball downfield, I think more could have been there for the Falcons passing game. So I do think that there is a bull case to be made for Jameis Winston next week. But at least looking at the uh, looking at the passing game as of right now, I am somewhat concerned about what we can really take from them. Like at least from it from a passing perspective, I know most folks might be concerned about Taysom Hill's rushing touchdown. But like while we kind of expected that to happen, depending on how the game flow might go, that didn't come until I think it was like two and a half minutes left in the game. And they were already up by 15 points. So I'm not as concerned with Sean Payton trying to pull any sort of tricks regarding pulling Jameis out. Like once they get into the goal line, letting Taysom come in. It wasn't like this same decision was made like when the game was close. So I think it was just more of Payton wanting to stick it to Bill Belichick and say, ha, you know, look, I've got this team. Like I'm actually able, capable of using a rushing quarterback like to the, you know, to the best of their abilities, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not really looking too much more into it. The again, with them coming into this game, I think they were 30th in pass rate over expectation, and Jameis has another game where he only throws about 20 pass attempts. I guess I can't really touch too many other pass catchers in New Orleans outside of Alvin Kamara. Well, tell me about Alvin Kamara, because it, it looks like he had an okay day. He had 24 rushes and 89 yards. He had a touchdown through the air, three for, 20, three for 29 with four targets there. Um, could it have been a bigger day? Was this? Did he kind of get the most out of this that this, that was you know kind of there for the taking? What was his day like? Yeah, I think that was pretty much it. Like he got what it was expected of him, and actually the twenty four carries is actually a career high for him. So I was actually kind of surprised that 
you know, there wasn't more on the table, but looking at the Saints offense as a whole from a like uh, offensive yards per drive perspective, I kind of understand because if you're not seeing more of those downfield throws from Jameis, if you're not seeing more of those third down conversions like from Jameis, then that whole offense isn't going to be as productive. Then we can't really expect much more from Alvin Kamara. And especially considering coming into this game, I mean, the Patriots, for all of their faults, I mean, they're actually fairly decent against the run. We do know that Bill Belichick, in all of his, you know, all of his defensive glory, he likes to take away some of your best pass catchers or your best offensive skill players. And with the Saints being as banged up as they are, it is just Alvin Kamara. So to be able to see him do what he did against his Patriots defense, I thought was actually fairly impressive given the matchup. Yeah, me too, actually. Uh, on the Patriots side, uh, we have some notes here from our research team saying, you know, Mac Jones was one for eight for 17 yards on throws 15 plus yards. Uh, in the first half, and he was 9 for 11 for 88 yards on throws shorter than 15-plus yards. So kind of a, a tale of, of two depths for Mac Jones here. Um, was he just really struggling to connect deep and, and accurate underneath, or what was what was the story with that? I think that's pretty much it. I mean, now through three weeks, so Mac Jones in his like professional career as a New England Patriot, he now has over 120 passes and like 120 passes in his career. He's yet to top 300 passing yards in a single game, and he only has like two passing touchdowns. I mean, he threw 51 passes today. I mean, that's like 51 passes, but only 28 completions. I mean, that is that is like Ben Roethlisberger like type numbers that we're talking about, like from a rookie. That even though we figured that their offense was going to be relatively conservative from a pass to rush ratio we at least expect some more production given the fact that i mean they've got nelson Aguilar, like jacoby myers like the two tight ends like johnny smith and hunter henry i mean so many skill position players that we at least think are going to be useful from a fantasy perspective not guys we're rushing out to put in our lineups week in and week out but at least productive from a fantasy perspective so I am somewhat concerned about like the efficiency of this passing offense. If if Bill Belichick is going to wind up like throwing him out there or throwing Mac Jones out there, having him execute like 51 passing plays, and we're really not even talking about like him as a possible streaming option on a week to week basis, I think that is somewhat of something of a concern for anybody that's rostering any of the Patriots pass catchers because there's really not a ton of value to be taking here. I mean, Nelson Aguilar gets the touchdown, sure, but. It's six touchdowns apiece for or six uh, targets apiece for the, the tight ends, and they're cannibalizing their value. Jacoby Myers looks great in the box score, but again, he doesn't wind up finding the paint. So it's just, are you expecting that type of yardage and those types of targets on a week-to-week basis? And so even with James White like going down with the hip injury this week, we're not even seeing a, a condensing of those targets. I mean, they've wound up throwing Brandon Bolden into the mix, like right after like James White goes down. So we can't take any sort of like the targets and the receptions aren't coalescing around any players so if mac jones isn't producing he's not being efficient he's not wind up getting those passing yards that we need in order to kind of spread that out amongst the group it's hard to roster them and like put them in your starting roster like on a weekly basis yeah and on the backfield james white was ruled out with a hip injury in this game and uh Ramondre stevenson was a healthy scratch so they just had uh, jj taylor and brandon bolden uh behind harris not a ton in the box score really from the backfield as a whole um Bolden three for twenty three, kind of kind of the bright spot here. So that'll just be something to to monitor, I think, throughout the week to see you know if if Stevenson's going to be active and, and involved, if White's going to be able to play. What what was the kind of the read watching live on the White injury? 
On the white injury, I mean, it, it, the injury itself just looked awful. I know there are already reports about uh, at least rumors kind of circulating about like uh, this essentially being season ending for James White. Uh, we'll, we'll wind up seeing like how that w- uh, shakes out. But I think even from a uh, from a backfield opportunity perspective, again, I, the the thought process would have been that they have a a player go down at that position, and some of that opportunity would start to condense onto like one player, like whether it be Damian Harris getting more run or we actually start to see more involvement from jj taylor but again like i mentioned it's just immediately they go to brandon bolden he starts getting involved in the passing game uh, we don't even know like what Ramondre stevenson status is going to be moving forward since he's still waiting in the wings it's just it's still a mess even after losing a player which i guess that makes sense like uh, that's on brand for the patriots but it doesn't help us fantasy managers to figure out do we want to try and throw a dart at jj taylor doesn't look to be the case Nobody wants to try and pick up Brandon Bolden on waivers. Like, I don't think that's ever going to be an option for anybody. So it's just still one of those confounding messes, which I guess is a part of Bill Belichick and his style of coaching, considering he doesn't care about fantasy managers, doesn't care about your fantasy football team. But without knowing more, like seeing how the touches uh, shake out over the next week or so, or even throughout practice, we'll have no idea until we get to week four. Yep. All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Chris. Anytime. The Chargers defeated the Chiefs 30-24 to in a game that has sent the Chiefs into last place in the AFC West. It's a weird season, Pat Darty, and this was kind of a weird game. Tell us about it. Yeah, the Chiefs have matched their loss total from the 2020 season already, and it feels like they haven't lost two games, you know, like the past three years, and... I don't know. So Justin Herbert regressed to the touchdown mean today, even though he had a season low for attempts. You know, he was just bound to get more in the scoring department after all that volume in the first two weeks and only having two touchdowns. So that was really nice. Uh, it was necessary with the Chargers still don't have anything resembling like an early down short yardage back. I mean, Austin Eckler, of course, he's like is the closest thing to an early down back, but they don't trust him as like a true goal line back, but Larry Roundtree, four carries for three yards. Justin Jackson, two carries for zero yards. Uh, so the, the touchdowns from Austin Eckler, uh, that should be real because, of course, he's uh, very good. And two, they just have no one to run the ball in. And they've got all these like really clutch guys in the red zone now. Where he's, you know, he's got the mind meld with Keenan Allen. We've got finally Mike Williams being like used in a much more fantasy-friendly role, one where he can dunk the ball in the red zone with his huge frame. Jared Cook is a third option. So really liking that uh, from the Chargers. Uh, I don't know why I started talking about the Chargers. I feel like we should should probably talk about the Chiefs, should we not? Uh, Maybe I just filibustered at the Chargers first because I have no idea what to say about the Chiefs? Let's let's finish up the Chargers because Mike Williams, I mean, this is – pretty serious seven receptions 122 yards two touchdowns one of which was the game winner um they told us they were going to do this they told us they were going to have him in this really important role they weren't going to use him as kind of a deep threat um and they followed through on that i was skeptical of that because generally you know i believe he's in his fifth season you know you don't tend to see big changes from guys um who have yet to really kind of flash a you know a completely different role well he's doing awesome in this completely different role um we knew this kind of going into the week that he was doing awesome into the role we were we were buying into it but really kind of solidifying um that this is not the mike williams we have seen in years past 
No, and you like talking about how rare this kind of leap is. So today, Mike Williams had a hundred yard game, which it feels like he does every week now. But this was the fifth one hundred yard game of his career. Like that is it. Like underscoring how much the usage has changed. He has twenty two catches for two hundred ninety five yards and four touchdowns. Like that's wide receiver one. That's not just wide receiver one production. That's like elite wide receiver one production. I mean, only Cooper Cup is looking like. You know, Cooper Cup's the best receiver in the NFL, obviously. That's but now Mike Williams is probably the second best receiver in the NFL at this point, folks. And I mean, it's just for real. And it's something the Chargers desperately needed because Keenan Allen is always going to be that guy who can like get open at will over the middle of the field. Will always be there as like a safety valve for his quarterback. He'll remain high volume too. But they really needed another dependable high volume receiver because they didn't make any notable additions in the draft or free agency. Jared Cook looking like strictly a role player, like Josh Palmer isn't ready. Jalen Guyton is just a role player. So like they just frankly needed this from Mike Williams, and thankfully he's been good enough to provide it. And just seeming like he's in the right place at the right time for the Chargers, and Joe Lombardi was in the right place at the right time uh, for Mike Williams. I don't think this is really a reason to be like that concerned about Keenan Allen, though, uh, uh, where, you know, and, and this was kind of – Tony Romo doing Tony Romo stuff. I, I happened to see where he, on in a very important play, was like, "What you want to do here is have Keenan Allen run this type of route, shake his guy, and then you hit him." And, and then that happened like exactly as he predicted. So Keenan Allen, you know, still very much a go-to guy in clutch situations. He had 12 targets in this game to nine for Mike Williams. He got in the end zone as well. Went eight for 50. It's not as exciting as the Mike Williams breakout, but. Are you at all concerned about Keenan Allen due to the Mike Williams breakout? No, because like they needed, they can have two high volume guys in this offense. He said twelve uh, targets twice in three games. Today was the first game where he didn't have a hundred yards, and kind of like speaking to what I said earlier. So Mike Williams is clearly going to be a priority to get him the ball, but Keenan Allen is still going to be the guy. Like when a play breaks down, like especially over the middle of the field, he will be the first read. And that happened on his touchdown. He scored a four-yard touchdown where the play totally broke down, and Justin Herbert literally did a jump pass into the end zone. And it was Keenan Allen, the guy who had broken open on that. So I really, so it's going to be a high-volume attack regardless. And they just have so few guys to funnel targets to that I really think they can both survive. And maybe you know, be in that eight to ten targets range, and honestly, maybe even that ten to twelve targets range. Wow. So I, I think the offense is big enough for the two of them. Let's talk about the Chiefs. They turned the ball over four times in this game, uh, two of those from Patrick Mahomes' interceptions. Uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire did get 100 yards on the ground on 17 rushes, 5.9 yards per attempt. Um, we kind of knew, though, that the Chargers would be okay with that uh, and, and really put their effort into stopping the pass. Travis Kelsey had a big game here, 11 targets, 104 yards. Nicole um, Hardman got in the end zone. But kind of a quiet day overall from the passing game. What was like? How did this happen? Because this wasn't really the Chiefs' uh, game that we were expecting. No, it's like I know. Are we starting to see like the breakdown of like the great man theory for the Chiefs? Where like just having to count on Patrick Mahomes to do everything. You know, he's up to the challenge basically every week. But it feels so silly to say on a team that has Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill, but. I feel like the the lack of a genuine third weapon is continuing to be a huge issue for them, like where it was so obvious in the Super Bowl and is this kind of carried over early in the season. I mean, defenses are selling out 
the stop Tyreek Hill. Travis Kelsey seems you know totally unstoppable, um, but you know, Tyreek Hill now was held like seventy six scoreless yards or something over his past two games, and there's just no one to make defenses pay. I mean, Michael Hardman had a touchdown on like a shovel pass today, but you know he's not command. He's not good enough to command targets. He's like in the, stuck in that three to five target range. Clyde Edwards Elaire still doing nothing as a pass catcher, and so like it puts forces Mahomes into like God mode basically. And the first interception wasn't his fault. Uh, he threw to Marcus Kemp. I don't know if anyone knows who that is. I know who he is because he went to Mizzou. Uh, wide open over the middle of the field, and the ball just goes off his hands for an interception. You know, Mahomes trying to make something happen. He finds you know, an unheralded guy, and he just immediately commits a turnover. And then late in the game, Mahomes, like no, no one's getting open. The play breaks down. He rolls out. And then, yeah, he makes a really poor decision. He back-footed an interception into a crowd of chargers around Travis Kelsey. And just like, yeah, he needs someone else other than Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill to step up. Otherwise it's not like it's going to be like a weekly theme for the chiefs. They're still mostly going to be winning. Of course, mostly going to putting up huge totals, but against these better teams, they just desperately need the emergence of a third weapon. Otherwise there's so, so much pressure on Patrick Mahomes. How much do you buy into the, the Chargers defense, you know, the, their game plan, we thought their game plan going in was going to be to let them have some rushing, but really focus on stopping the pass. That seems to have played out, but do you think it just really came down to the Chiefs not having that third option? Or was that exacerbated by the fact that, you know, they, the Chargers were going to be focusing on stopping the two weapons, even at the expense of letting uh, the Chiefs run on them if they wanted it was probably more the game plan and just also the mistakes though. So, I mean, CH lost a fumble for the second time in as many weeks after previously never losing a fumble in his life. And then Tyreek Hill let the ball get peanut Tillman punched out and uncharacteristic turnover for him. And I guess, you know, even with the Mahomes interceptions, without those two fumbles, you know, the whole game is probably, and the chiefs, I guess maybe have so much margin for error. uh, Typically that they could withstand like one or two turnovers, but four turnovers, so maybe I'm just trying to fit like my my preconceived narrative with the lack of a third weapon, and that today really was just as simple as turnovers and kind of bad fumble luck. But yeah, the game plan they were Ty, or Clyde edwards Lair was running into some soft fronts and getting some soft yardage. It was only the third hundred yard game of his career on the ground, so they certainly seemed fine conceding that and like just putting the clamps down on the passing game, uh, which is easier said than done, of course, than Patrick Mahomes. But it worked on Sunday. Let's get to the second game you did for us. Um, uh, do we have the, to? The, the Broncos defeated the Jets twenty-six to zero. And Pat, this is, I believe, the only podcast that we do for a good good football show that does not uh, air on YouTube as well. Which is good news for you, since your eyes are full of blood uh, after having <laughs> yes. watched the Broncos yes. defeat the Jets yes. and shut them out. Um, uh, are you okay? I'm okay. My eyes were bleeding earlier. With I just left the room for a minute. I turned on the Raiders Dolphins game, which you know it could be eye bleeding for different reasons, but at least provided me joy with teams making mistakes and like a few big plays. It was at least close. Uh, yeah, hard to find any redeeming value whatsoever in this Broncos Jets game, Pat. Yeah, like I guess Michael Carter got the most rushes here. Um, is he the lead back now, and does that matter? Yeah, I mean, he was the certified starter. He got the official start. He outtouched Ty Johnson 11-4 to with Tevin Coleman not playing. But 
that just only gets you so far behind a horrible offensive line and alongside a rookie quarterback of getting no respect whatsoever from opposing defenses and the Jets line, you know, any big play, any third and short, any fourth and short, was this getting totally caved in? uh, Zach Wilson took five sacks, lost over 40 yards. Like, where are you going to find rushing room there? Uh, The game was 10 to nothing at the beginning of the second quarter. You know, it's 45 minutes where you're playing with a two score deficit. Where are you supposed to find running room there? And Michael Carter, a few plays where he looked explosive, like, he looked laterally like he had a lot to offer, but yeah, you just can't find space in th- that situation. It's just like a hope, unless you're like literally Barry Sanders, or like maybe like early career LaShawn McCoy, where you can like jump cut into nothing, like space that didn't previously previously exist. You're not going to find success in this setup. And there was just pretty much nothing Michael Carter or Ty Johnson could do. I'm reviewing the box score. I'm starting to, understand why there was so much eye bleeding because like where did the points come from here teddy bridgewater did not throw for a touchdown javante williams did get in the end zone a rushing score but he had a 2.4 yards per carry melvin gordon also got in for a rushing score 3.4 yards per carry um like i'm i feel like this game's missing points they they scored 26 points how did that happen uh it was a lot of javante williams and melvin gordon goal line carries uh javante had three of them Melvin had two of them. They both cashed one in. Uh, Javante lost a fumble at the goal line, though, late in the game, which is definitely something to watch heading into week four where the Broncos like begin to play a real NFL schedule against the Baltimore Ravens. And Melvin Gordon won the carries battle, I believe, 18 to 12. So he was already getting more carries. Now the rookie has created another opening with the fumble. And the points, I mean, I, I don't – there were a or, lot or of Zach McManus field goals is what I watched. Yeah, yeah. I there were a that. lot of Zach Wilson sacks leading to a lot of good short fields for the Broncos, basically. And I guess it was like a yardage vortex. Like, I have no – because, like, no one on the Broncos other than uh, Tim Patrick had more than, like, 40 yards, I think. So it was very unclear at the end of the game, like, what had actually happened. Again, I may have been blinded by my <laughs> bleeding eyes, but it was very difficult to say where any of this came from. How did Teddy Bridgewater look in this game? Uh, low volume affair for him, but you know he's had a surprisingly good start to the year. Did he look um, kind of like the same guy we saw to start the season? He looked good. You know, the signature play of the game was a sideline shot to Tim Patrick, letting Tim Patrick, you know, like Cortland Sutton, kind of show off his body control, his footwork along the side of the field to kind of throw. You know, that Teddy is not known for making, and will be on the spot. You know, when games are actually closer, when they're playing real NFL defenses like will he actually pull the trigger on those kinds of throws but yeah I mean he he's looking like looking like he's having fun playing pitch and catch with Tim Patrick and Cortland Sutton two decidedly non-Teddy Bridgewater type quarterbacks so we know we're not going to get a true like fully new Teddy but he's at least looking like he's entertaining the idea like okay I've got these two sideline dominators I'm actually going to throw the ball up and let them try to win it all right that's something um thanks so much Pat I'll uh, talk to you next week and, uh, no, no bleeding eyes next week. Yeah, let's let's hope. The Bengals defeated the Steelers twenty-four to ten in a game that I thought might be a little bit ugly going in, and it looks like was maybe even uglier than I was thinking. Kyle Dvorak, am I right? Was this one uh, a bit of a of a tough game, or, or how was it? 
Yeah, everyone, uh, everyone in the you know the the NBC internal Slack was like, "Oh man, all these injuries!" And I, my game didn't feature a ton of injuries. There are some that we'll get to, but I was like, I, I, honestly, I would take blurbing some other game for even to blurb all the injuries because this was like, man, Pittsburgh looks bad. It is just, uh, it is a tough scene if you you know you have Pittsburgh futures. Why would you? I don't know, but like if you have any sort of long term investment on the Steelers, if you have season long players, if you have best ball shares. Ben just looks dusty, man. That's just all there is to it. The dude doesn't look like he can can really throw his deep ball anymore. He still has, I would say he probably still has the power at least to put up deep balls. He overthrew James Washington early in the game. But the thing is, you need to be able to combine power and accuracy. I think those are, that's very important. That's why a lot of the guys who are physically gifted quarterbacks still don't manage to pull it off is because I think part of having that arm is knowing how to use it. So it didn't look great, and then there were a handful of small injuries in this game, or at least a, a handful of, of notable injuries. They didn't weren't like guys carted off, but they're worth talking about. When you don't have power, your running back may end up with 19 targets, like Najee Harris did in this one. That seems like a typo. How? How? I mean, I actually going into the game was thinking that this was a possibility because Deontay Johnson was out, that we might see a lot of targets to Najee Harris. I did not think that 19 was on the table. He went 14 for 102. He did not score. He rushed 14 times for 40 yards, 2.9 yards per carry, did not score. What's your takeaway on Najee Harris here? Because, I mean, the, the mere fact that he can get 19 targets in a game, I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. So, I mean, I know it's bad. The offense is bad, and that's bad for the running back, but that's crazy. It is crazy. So this is where the injuries come in, right? Deontay Johnson doesn't play at all in the game. Judy Smith-Schuster leaves relatively early in the game, and then Chase Claypool in, like, the third, fourth quarter looked to do uh, maybe a hamstring or something. I don't know. It was a leg injury that he came up limping. He left came back in, and then I believe uh, limped off the field again right towards the very end. So Najee was literally playing the team's wide receiver one role towards the end of the game, and it fit perfectly, unfortunately, with what they have to do is when Chase Claypool is your wide receiver one, he can see nine targets in the first half and convert that into like less than 40 yards. Whereas when Najee Harris is your wide receiver one, he fits perfectly with Ben Roethlisberger's inability to throw it beyond five yards downfield right so i think it was the the perfect combination obviously of just having they had like three or four healthy wide receivers like active wide receivers at the end of the game and Najee has the ability as you said he's not a bad pass catcher he's a pretty good pass catcher i don't think he's explosive but he is good enough to draw those targets and then he fits with what the offense is being forced to do because of the quarterback assuming they have like like chase claypool i, I guess was able to finish the game he's kind of in and out of the lineup for the final few drives uh, Juju Smith-Schuster was rolled out pretty quickly after. So it was a rib injury, I believe. It took a, a pretty hard hit. So uh, if those guys, if none of those guys are playing, like we could literally see Alvin Kamara type of target shares. He won't be as efficient as Alvin Kamara in either the running game or the receiving game because I think Alvin Kamara is just a different breed. But it doesn't matter. Like, you know, 19 targets, 19 targets. It's the second most, I believe, only Alvin Kamara has more in a single game, second most all time. And uh, it is the fourth most receptions, 14 in a regular season game, uh, like six most in, a, in a, any game in the NFL history, history period. He could have 19 targets total this season, and we'd be excited about that usage. He got 19 targets in one game. That, that is pretty wild. Let's, uh, let's talk about the Bengals side of things. This set up for a really nice game for Joe Mixon. He's getting all the work here. Uh, the Bengals have a big lead. They, you know, they win by 14 points. He does rush 18 times only, well, for 90 yards, not not terrible, 5.0 yards per carry. Um, but only one target 
one reception, four yards. Does this qualify as a as a big disappointment for Joe Mixon? Didn't score a touchdown on this one. Uh, I wouldn't say big disappointment. Like you said, you know, he's efficient as a runner. He still saw the bulk of the carries. And uh, the targets didn't come because they hardly threw it all. They threw less than 20 times. They ran in this game more than they ended up throwing. And now on the year, that brings them to, I believe, having more rush attempts than pass attempts through three games. So not a big disappointment because he looked like he looked good. He was efficient and he didn't give up work to his backups. Like I think like Chris Evans saw a target or two, but Mixon briefly stepped off the field sometime, I think close to halftime, maybe just before or just after. So, I mean, you know, you don't love the fantasy stat line that you got. You got, you know, you didn't get your touchdown, so you didn't have a great week. But I think disappointments to me come more from underlying problems with the player, whether it be usage or talent. And he showed no deficiency in either of those. So you live in and you move on with probably another really good, a really good carry percentage again next week and every week going forward because that you're just not going to use the Maj AP run. Why would you? All right. That makes a lot of sense. What about on the receiving side? Uh, Jamar Chase, I mean, He's had two touchdowns in this game. I saw the one where he kind of like he plucks the ball just as it looks like it kind of got past him and he he kind of plucks it out of the air uh, for for a touchdown. Beautiful play. Um, Is he like is, is this guy a superstar? So my only thing that I wouldn't say he's a superstar yet is he got out-targeted by Tyler Boyd. And I think mm-hmm. superstars are probably going to lead their team in targets a lot. And we haven't quite seen that from him yet. But does he have all of the trappings of a potential superstar? I don't think that's in question, you know. For a guy who supposedly couldn't catch a few weeks ago, I mean, damn, this guy looks great. And he's like he's scoring. He's super efficient. I think he entered the week uh, second in yards per route run, something like that, or at least like top 10, top 12. And, uh, and he's done nothing but be efficient. He can go deep. Deep. He can be used in the red zone. There's just, I don't think, and this was his profile coming out of college. He was an incredible receiver who could do literally anything, play around the field, uh, red zone, deep, short to intermediate. He just was the complete package. And this type of outcome through three weeks should not be surprising at all. Like very obviously a wide receiver too. And if the team is ever forced to throw more, if they play a team that can put up more than 10 points that actually pushes them to put like, they didn't even get to 20 pass attempts. If, if this team ever throws 35 pass attempts, especially in a game without T. Higgins, depending on when he comes back, uh, it's just going to be absolutely nuts for Jamar Chase, who's super, super efficient already, just needs a little extra bump in volume. The the interesting thing for me here is, you know, with T. Higgins out, and we don't know if we're going to have T. Higgins next week, we see Jamar Chase and Tyler Boyd combined for 11 targets. We don't see more than one target for any other wide receiver. Is your read that if T. Higgins misses again, that this offense is going to kind of condense to these top two wide receivers? Or was this just kind of a very low volume passing game where we can't really it's it's too too small of a sample to, to make that kind of judgment call? Yeah, I'll say it's probably too small of a sample to say that these guys will combine for over uh, half the team's targets, but should I, I think it should condense. They don't have like a, a deep, like, unless I, I mean, I don't know. Some people might like Auden Tate. I'm not really throwing in Auden Tate as a guy who can just backfill the T. Higgins role or whatever. I think of anything, the only guy who really stands to benefit more than we saw in this game from T. Higgins being out would be Joe Mixon. Like, you, like before, up until this game, he had dominated the targets. They hadn't thrown to the running backs a ton, but he had dominated the targets, third down snaps for this team. They just haven't had to use him as much in the passing game because they're just riding him on the ground. So I think if a third pass catcher were to emerge, it would just be Joe Mixon because I'm I'm just looking at the talent. Like, this game was a good way to say, oh, well, it makes sense. The talent dictated how they distributed it. Joe Mixon is 
is easily the third most talented option they have, even if you want to say, well, he's not going to be as efficient because he's going to get these low dot throws. I still think if you just base it on the, the distribution of talent, you would probably get this type of target share with extra targets for Joe Mixon. That makes sense. All right, let's move to the next game. You did for us. That was Seattle, Minnesota, correct? That is correct. Okay. So the Vikings defeated the Seahawks here 30-17. to 17. Tell us about this one, Kyle. Yeah, this one, uh, I, this one uh, was interesting, uh, if only because we finally got, I, I think, some uh, some stability, especially from the ancillary pieces. Last week, we had a good game from Freddie Swaim and from KJ Osborne. And then we had had two, I mean, there were terrible performances. I think it was like 50 and 60 yards from DK Metcalf finally emerged as well. So I think this is probably, uh, at least in terms of the distribution, what we can expect going forward. I don't think we get long swim touchdowns. I don't think we get, uh, you know, five targets last week. And KJ Osborne, the same thing, was like, being a pretty integral piece of the offense through two weeks. I don't think he disappears entirely, but in this game, I believe he saw two targets. I I think that is at least closer to expectation than, you know, scoring more fantasy points in back-to-back weeks than Justin Jefferson. So this felt like a return to normalcy, even if maybe the Vikings did technically pull off the upset here. Yeah, it's true. Kind of everything was sort of shifting in ways that's going to make more sense over the, the full season sample. The one thing that did not was Adam Thielen is just going to score... I believe thirty-five touchdowns is what I just—that's off top. No, that's just—that's just normal. That's uh, that is the return. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is like so. I know you know touchdowns are very hard to predict. It's one of the least stable things we have for for fantasy scoring. Targets predict receptions and yards quite well. Using air yards can help smooth that out. One thing that is not as stable is touchdowns. But the way Adam Thielen is used will make him a a yearly guy who you're like, I can project him to be among the league leaders on a sufficient level of volume in touchdown rate. He is like they use him almost like Devontae Adams, the way we say like Devontae Adams is like a borderline goal line running back. Adam Thielen is maybe not quite at that level, but he is one of the five probably highest touchdown rate over expectation guys we can consistently predict. So yeah, is he gonna is he gonna score on average like what more than once a week? No, but could he could he again push for double digit touchdowns? I mean, he's already like clearly on pace to do that. But yeah, it, it shouldn't be awfully surprising. We're running a little hot start the year, to be fair though. Yeah, he I believe this ended in a field goal, but I think it was a third and goal from the two or something like that. They threw a quick hitter to Adam Thielen that got stopped, but he could have easily scored another (laughs) touchdown in this game. They tried to make that happen. So it is pretty crazy. Uh, Justin Jefferson went 118 yards in this one, got in the end zone. Tyler Conklin got in the end zone here and went uh, 70 yards on seven receptions. Um, Anything there? Are you, you know, is this kind of a a tight end breakout here from Conklin or is just sort of uh, the defenses were, the defense had to respect uh, Osborne in this one. Yeah, so the interesting thing with Minnesota through three weeks is they just have had no choice. Outside this game, I mean, they they led most of the, I think all of the second half, actually. Uh, first half was a little bit closer. Uh, at least the first two games, you could say they were very uh, contentious games or they were losing throughout them, so they had to pass a lot. This game, it seemed like maybe a bit more of a decision to actually uh, focus on passing. And who knows? Maybe when you have Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson That's the optimal thing to do. I'm just guessing here. But because of that, because their passing volume is up compared to last year, there is room for, in the first two weeks, K.J. Osborne, one week, Tyler Conklin. Even this week, there was a very significant receiving role for the running back. It just didn't happen to be Dalvin Cook. So I think it's maybe more of a product, not of a Conklin breakout or K.J. Osborne being better than expected, but just the uptick in passing volume. You can only funnel so much of your offense, your passing attack, to two guys. That will still 
potentially make both of them wide receiver ones, but there's room for a weekly wide receiver three, four flex type of guy or a high end tight end two. Now that their passing volume is reaching a level that is not like 1990s football. I'll note that, you know, Dalvin Cook could have had a really big game here. Alexander Madison rushed 26 times for 112 yards, didn't score. Had eight targets for six receptions and 59 yards, didn't score. Uh, Nice game for Madison, but I think my takeaway is, man, (laughs) Dalvin Cook could have had himself a a really nice day had he been healthy. Um, On the Seattle side, um, you mentioned DK Metcalf had kind of a get-right game with 107 yards and a touchdown. Tyler Lockett. There was a bit of a scare here where his knee was twisted. Did that clear up? I I believe he came back in the game, right? Yeah, so he goes down on his knee. It was actually a a play that was, I believe it was the play that was originally ruled a fumble, but he hit his knee down and that was down, but that also seemed to have caused an injury. And he was down for a few minutes. Like I believe they went to commercial break, came back and then showed him limping off the sidelines. Players were out taking a knee on the field. So it really did look like a, a pretty serious injury. And he ultimately came back and he like, I would be just floored if his injury was as serious as it appeared that they would have any any realistic chance of bringing him back in the game. So, yes, he's probably going to play like maybe weeks on end at less than 100 percent. But I would say given the, uh, the the trappings of what his injury looked to be a very serious injury, obviously coming back is kind of a win in the books. And in terms of the, you know, the fantasy production, I think you kind of just have to take these, what, he fourth 31. You kind of have to take those lumps because when you play opposite DK Metcalf, we saw it all last year. These things are just going to happen. You take your seven-point fantasy games uh, because you know there are 50-point fantasy games in his range of outcomes, and that's something like 12 or 15 receivers in the entire NFL can say. So fantasy production, not great, but I think at the end it does almost come out as a win just because the health issue could have been. It looked potentially serious, and entering the game at least is a sign that he can uh, maybe suit up next week. With the Seahawks, you know, you mentioned that the Vikings are leading most of this game. Then to see that they attempted less passes than the Vikings does not make me feel great. Were they just sort of reluctant to embrace the type of game that this was? Yeah, that's pretty classic uh, Pete Carroll is that, uh, I mean, what, like, you, how do you even, like you said, they were losing most of this game, I believe, by, uh, by the third quarter, by even halftime, they were actually losing this game. Uh, if if not now, then when, I would ask Pete, and Pete would say never would be the answer. I just don't think, uh, you know, I think this offense can still be hyper-efficient. That is Russell Wilson's calling card, it is throwing multiple, you know, throwing four touchdowns on 20 pass attempts. He can do that, but it does seem like, uh, unlike a team like the Cowboys, we're just never going to get uh, Russell Wilson unleashed. Even if his, if his defense is bad and gives up a lot of points, I'm sure it will happen once or twice this year, but your odds of getting the Russell Wilson 45 pass temp game, if this game is any indicator, it, it seems pretty slim. Okay, that's a bummer, but uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad that's what we're going to end it on, but it is what we're going to end it on. <laughs> Kyle, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk next week. Have a good one. The Falcons defeated the Giants 17-14. to I covered this game for NBC Sports Edge, and it was pretty interesting to see Saquon Barkley's usage in this game. I was impressed with just kind of how normal he looked. He looked like Saquon Barkley he got used like vintage old school 2019 Saquon Barkley and in fact he had 60 snaps in this game Devontae Booker was a healthy scratch in this game which left Gary Brightwell as his backup Brightwell had just two snaps he got a carry on one of those snaps for four yards but Saquon got 16 carries for 51 he had a touchdown 
and then the receiving usage was there, which was one of the big questions coming into this game. How involved was Saquon going to be involved as a receiver? Uh, with Daniel Jones hasn't shown that same ceiling thus far. He had seven targets here, had six receptions for 43 yards. So really not the biggest day for Saquon, but answered a lot of questions for me in this game, feeling really good about his role going forward. Um, Daniel Jones looked pretty decent on the ground with eight carries for 39 yards. He had 266 yards passing. Um, it, it didn't look that bad. Uh, he it, it just sort of the Giants offense would kind of stall. Um, only only generated 14 points. Uh, the issue, I think, really came down to the fact that Sterling Shepard left this game with a hamstring pull in the first half. Um, and Darius Slayton left earlier with a hamstring pull. And neither player returned. They were, they were both um, they were both done within the first half. So that left them with Kenny Galladay, who they were still continuing to manage his snaps. He came into the game with a hip injury. They're still managing his snaps. He didn't get to, uh, you know, they, they didn't kind of like lean on him once the other guys had gone out. They still were sticking with the plan. Um, and as a result, Colin Johnson had seven targets, went five for 51. C.J. Board was involved with two targets. He had one for 38. Kadarius Toney got a little bit of run at times, but still only three targets, two for 16. Um, Evan Ingram, clearly not fully healthy either. He had six targets, but only had two for 21. So there was just, um, I just think Jones kind of struggled to get anything going. Um consistently to sort of sustain drives on the Falcons side uh honestly this offense looked kind of more discombobulated than the Giants this was not a very strong looking day from the Falcons but they do get the win um Ryan threw for 243 yards and two touchdowns um his his leading receiver from a yardage standpoint was Cordero Patterson Patterson had a couple big plays including a 28 yard run which was on the final drive of the game as the Falcons drove down the field, uh, picking up like 50-plus yards to get uh, to uh, kick the game-winning field goal. And Patterson's 28-yard reception was on a screen and was really big in, in leading to that game-winning field goal. And at times, like, he was a spark for them. Um, he was getting used pretty heavily in the receiving game. He also got seven carries uh, for 20 yards, he had seven targets, six receptions for 82 yards through the air. So very involved. Mike Davis, definitely still the lead back here. He had 12 rushes for 50 yards. And Mike Davis also got four targets and had four for 20. So it's kind of like what we expected, but it's just it's interesting just how much usage is coming out of these two players, even with Mike Davis still having a receiving role. They're utilizing Patterson very heavily. Uh, Kyle Pitts, not as much as we'd like. He had three targets here. He had two receptions for 35 yards. One of those receptions was a 25-yard reception that got them into position. It was the second of two big plays on that final drive that helped them win the game. So he did come through for them in a big spot there. Um, but overall, not that heavily involved. Calvin Ridley got 11 targets here. He had eight receptions for 61 yards. It, he just... You know he looked good, like when he was targeted, when he was when he had the ball, when they when they could get him uh, the ball. You know, 
in stride. He looked really good, but it does seem like it's going to be a bit of a struggle for Ridley until this offense can show a bit more life. Uh, Olamide Zacchaeus scored a touchdown here. Uh, it was like a four-yard score, um, and overall he wasn't too heavily involved, just six targets. Uh, he went three for 32. Uh, Russell Gage, just a reminder, missed this game. So all in all, this was there was not a ton here for fantasy. Uh, I think the big takeaways are probably that Patterson like might be startable if in a pinch. Davis is going to be harder to trust than you'd like. Ridley, you got to stick with it, but you know there's going to be some some down weeks, more down weeks than we really prefer. Um, and that Saquon Barkley, I think, is back. He's he's Saquon Barkley now. The Giants' offense is not ideal. It's going to have some, you know, it, it's, there's going to be disappointing days for a guy as talented as Saquon Barkley in a huge role. But um, bottom line is that I think he's got that huge role back. The Ravens defeated the Lions 19 to 17 on the longest field goal in NFL history. Denny Carter, you were there to witness it in real time. Tell us how beautiful it was. It was, and I just want to thank Pat Doherty for assigning me this game. He he must have known that Justin Tucker was going to break the NFL record with a 66-yarder that hit the uh, crossbar and, and bounced over. I'm sure you, everyone has seen it by now. But in real time, it was it was one of the more shocking things you, you you've ever seen because it, when it hit the crossbar you think oh it was so close and you kind of look i looked away i oh it's it's not it's not in and then i saw dan campbell look like he was going to explode on the sideline and uh it was uh <laughs> it, it indeed it went through somehow um i my girlfriend wasn't watching much of the games with me but i as the kick was lining up, she's a Ravens fan, so I said, "You might, you might want to see this." And lo and behold, it was worth watching. Um, not only did Pat Darty assign you the game in which the longest kick ever yeah. was was made, he also distracted the refs prior to uh, the the previous play, where, where there was pretty clearly a uh, delay of game penalty that should have been called there, and this kick never should have happened. But no. two gifts from uh, Roto Pat to to make sure you get yeah. Thank you, thank you to Rodeo. and and also uh, yeah. So the, the the play before the Ravens missed the uh, snap uh, by two seconds. Uh, the 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 play clock was dead for a full two seconds before Lamar Jackson snapped it, and no one said anything. Yeah, pretty pretty wild stuff. Uh, this game, I feel like the on the Ravens side, the the big headline to me seemed to be that Marquise Brown dropped everything. Um, yeah. How much? How bad was it? Brutal. I, honestly, it's uh, you could watch football for a whole year and not see anything quite like it because one of the drops was would have been a, would have been a, a good catch, not a great catch, but a nice, good, solid catch. Right? It was in traffic. There were defenders all over the place. I get that sort of, but there were two drops where he was too open. You know, like when a receiver is too open, you can see that they're over-processing, they're overthinking. This is my this is my film take on, on Marquise Brown dropping it, but he and and he totally shanked two easy touchdowns, um, and then a third that that would have been a nice catch. It, it could have been a monster day for him and Lamar Jackson. Instead, uh, Marquise Brown catches three balls for fifty three yards. Oof. Mark Andrews had a nice day. He went five for one hundred and nine. Um, did he? You know what? What was that? Uh, yeah. What was that he, like? 
he was tied. Uh, he was tied for the team lead with seven targets. Uh, Sammy Watkins and Marquise Brown uh, each saw seven targets along with Andrews. Uh, Andrews uh, was was ripping Lions up the seam uh, throughout this game, and Lamar Jackson, you know, continued to look to Andrews when when things got critical. You know, when when the Ravens were facing you know third and eight or ten or twelve or in that range, he would go right to Andrews over the middle. Uh, Andrews broke one off for 41 yards. That was his big play of the day. Um, it was the really the only big play from the Ravens all day. Overall, uh, just a, a horrific offensive performance from Baltimore. On the ground, you know, it's not like you see yards per carry numbers of, you know, four, 4.4 from these running backs. That's not that bad, but it's way below what you would expect from the Ravens. Mm-hmm. Um what was the the deal with the rushing attack? They just weren't able to get anything going there. Really disturbing for fantasy purposes, I would say. Uh, I was uh, I was tilting within five seconds of turning on the game. Uh, Devontae Freeman somehow got three carries in the in the first maybe like ten plays for Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, they seemed to want to give him a shot at establishing it against Detroit, and that didn't work out. Three carries for eight yards. He did not see. Another carry for the rest of the game. Uh, Tyson Williams saw five carries, and Latavius Murray led all running backs for Baltimore with seven carries for 28 yards. But you know, M- Murray Murray is a is a plotter. I mean, like he's like nothing special. He gets what's blocked just barely. Um, Tyson Williams, I, I I thought I think a lot of people thought going into this game that this was like, you know, the kid what the kids might call a smash spot for Tyson Williams. It was it was not. I can report that it was certainly not five touches, didn't catch a pass, really poor day from the Ravens backfield. On the Lions side, uh, we had DeAndre Swift going off. Um, not so much on the ground where he had 14 carries for 47 yards. Um, but as a receiver, he mm-hmm. had seven targets, seven receptions, and then 60 yards. Um, he did get in the end zone on the ground, which was nice. But Jamal Williams also scored a touchdown and I believe that that happened just after DeAndre Swift almost got in the end zone so it could have been a bigger day for Swift I suppose that's right that's right uh I I think Swift actually did uh reach the ball over the goal line uh on on and and had that second touchdown the Lions didn't seem interested in reviewing it for some reason Mm. and neither did the I mean no no one made a peep and I'm sitting there going um that looks like a touchdown. Why, why is no one's doing this? Uh, you know, going forward, forward with some sort of review. Anyway, Williams comes in, gets the touchdown. It could have been a monster day for Swift. As it was, it was it was a pretty solid day overall. I think DeAndre Swift had twenty three or twenty four PPR uh, points. Um, he seems to be, you know, like the, the centerpiece, give or take, for the Lions' offense. I don't know if that's a great thing, um, but. I think what what you envisioned DeAndre Swift doing in, in back in August when you're drafting him um, is is happening. It's happening, and I think it, it it can continue to happen because he's so involved in the passing game. Entering this game was kind of seen as like the co-engine of the offense with T.J. Hawkinson. T.J. Hawkinson completely mm-hmm. is invincible in this game. Two for ten on two targets. Um, Khalif Raymond picked up a lot of the slack. Had ten targets. Quintus Cephas is another guy that was exciting last week. He just has one target here, goes yeah. one for eight. What was going on with the passing game? I think in particular, Hawkinson is pretty shocking to see him so uh, uninvolved. Yeah. 
uh, Hawkinson uh, wasn't even the most heavily targeted Lions tight end, believe it or not. Darren Feltz has that title. Uh, Darren Feltz saw three targets to Hawkinson's two targets. Feltz caught two balls for 35 yards. And it, it, it seemed to me that the Ravens were intent on taking away Hawkinson, who has really been peppered by Jared Goff over the first two weeks of the season. Um, they were basically telling Goff, you can do what you want with your running backs, checking down to your running backs. You can throw it to your receivers, but you're not going to Hawkinson. And uh, it, it worked out because, you know, Goff ended with 217 scoreless yards, um, kind of Rams era Goff rather than the, um, you know, useful fantasy, useful golf we saw in the first two games. So that it's a little concerning, I, I will say, that Hawkinson can be taken away like that. Um, but also remember that this game was ugly. Uh, it was low scoring. And I think that when you get into those pass-heavy game scripts that we're going to see the Lions get into most weeks, he'll, he'll be fine. All right, let's move to the second game you covered for us, the Rams defeating the Buccaneers 34 to 24 as the Buccaneers are down and trying to come back, attempting an onside kick at the end of this game. Not quite the back and forth type of game that that a lot of us were expecting. The Rams able to win this game a little easier than I think most people would have expected. Is that is that yeah. right? Oh yeah. I mean it, it was uh it was over in I don't know at the end of the third quarter. Like you know the the, the Rams had taken control um, the, the Bucks suffered uh, at least one, maybe two more secondary injuries uh, in an increasingly banged up secondary. Uh, Stafford just did whatever he wanted uh, uh, against this Bucks secondary, which is no different than their first two games, really. Um, you know, even Matt Ryan had a pretty nice day against the, the Bucks secondary in week two. So uh, I think this, this is a secondary will continue to target for fantasy purposes. Um, and it, and it could be it could be an issue down the line. Um, you know, the, the Bucks had to kind of abandon their regular offense because they got down by two or three scores pretty quickly. If that continues to happen, you know, it'll have it, it'll reverberate throughout the Bucks offense. Uh, on the Rams offense uh, quickly, they, Deshaun Jackson was kind of a, a big story here. He went three for 120 and a touchdown. He had five targets. I believe he had another potential for another long play um and robert woods you know who we would kind of think be, would be the secondary option only had three for 33 while van jefferson had four for 42 cooper mm-hmm. cup continued being cooper cup nine for 96 two touchdowns on 12 targets so no concerns about him but beyond cup now that jackson has emerged are you at all concerned about kind of how these targets are going to break out Yes. I mean, I think that it's time to sound the alarms on Robert Woods, uh, Bobby Trees, some call him. You know, uh, obviously, Deshaun Jackson is going to be used in a much different way than Robert Woods. So they're not competing for the same role or anything. Even Van Jefferson is going to be used differently than, than Woods. But um, the fact that Woods is like, at best, the third option for Stafford right now, is not good like that like even in even in a game where Stafford just shredded the Bucks secondary 27 completions 343 yards four touchdowns Robert Woods goes three catches for 33 yards and really like I can't even remember 
uh, what any of those catches. I, I guess I can remember one where he made a nice uh, catch that was on a pass that was a little bit behind him. But you you have you have so many pass catchers here: Higby, Cup, Jefferson, Jackson. Uh, even Sonny Michelle got four targets in this one, which is only two fewer than Robert Woods. I, I, I don't know what to tell people to do with Robert Woods right now. Honestly, it's uh, I don't see how you can really start him going forward. That's rough. Um, on the Buccaneers side, uh, Mike Evans had a really nice game with 10 targets, eight for 106, but, but didn't score. The only guy who got uh, in the end zone as a receiver at all was Gio Bernard yeah. coming back from the dead here with 10 targets. Uh, I guess this sort of makes sense given that Ronald Jones led the backfield with 2.2 yards per carry. So really no efficiency on the receiving side or in the, the rushing side. Fournette went four attempts for eight yards. Um, so you might as well just bring in the pure receiving back. But do you expect now a bigger role for Gio Bernard? Or was this just kind of pure, you know, desperation, two-minute drill type offense? I, I think it was more the latter. I, I think that as much as I want Bernard to be an every week thing uh, for, for my own selfish purposes, I, I, uh, I really don't see, I, I don't see this happening every week. It, he's game script dependent. And, th- and this script unfolded just perfectly for a guy like Bernard. You know, Bernard didn't see a carry this week or I don't think he's seen a carry in three weeks in the, in the all three games. So he's out, he's out there to do one thing and that's pass, catch passes uh, Fournette lost that role, which which he seemed to have control of as of last week. That's a that's a major issue for him in fantasy. Major, like if you can't if he can't get any pass catching work, you know he had three catches for twenty six yards here, but he was phased out as this game went on. And like you said, Bernard ends up with nine catches, fifty one yards. Um, you know, Joe, obviously, you know Rojo not a not a factor. Maybe Bernard, if this Bucks defense continues to struggle and the bucks have to pass 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 I, maybe bernard emerges as as something of an every week option but i i don't think so on the receiving side antonio brown misses the game the question was you know who is the wide receiver three here is it scotty miller is it tyler mm-hmm. johnson it looks like it was tyler johnson mm-hmm. if we get another missed game from brown or from evans or godwin at some point in the future do you think that this is like the like something we can take away from this game that Tyler Johnson is in fact the wide receiver three here, or is it kind of like too tough to tell? I'll be interested to see uh, snap counts and, and routes run on, on Monday morning. I'll check that out. And obviously I'll, I'll write about that or blurb about it, but uh, Tyler Johnson was the, the, the more explosive option. It seemed like, although Scotty Miller is not, not exactly a dud uh, as, as we know, uh, Tyler Johnson was this close to breaking off a, a 60 or 70 yard catch and run. He got sh- tackled by the shoelaces. Um, that would have changed the dynamic of both the game and the way we're viewing Tyler Johnson and, and Scotty Miller. But yeah, to answer your question, I believe it is Tyler Johnson who would be the main beneficiary of Brown being out. Okay. All right. I think uh, that covers everything. Thanks so much, Denny. Thank you. The Browns defeated the Bears 26-6 in a less-than-spectacular debut for rookie Justin Fields. Daigle, was it even worse than it looks in the box score? Wasn't even close. We knew it was a terrible spot for Fields on the road against the Browns in his first career start, but you could not have imagined this. 
when the intermission had started, Fields had four pass attempts, completing three of them for one carry for seven yards. That's how the first two quarters went. And at the end of the day, it's just the play calling and overall game planning, treating him like a baby, essentially, that doesn't know how to read the playbook, that sunk the Bears offense altogether. 30 dropbacks and just four designed rollouts for a rushing athletic quarterback make zero sense at all. Nowhere to go. Sacked nine times on the afternoon, including a franchise record four and a half for Miles Garrett. Could not breathe throughout the game. That's literally the summary because there was nothing going. Their longest play on offense, if you even want to call it that, was a Hail Mary to Darnell Mooney downfield that drew a 48-yard DPI that was even questionable and being called because John Johnson pushed off Mooney's back to pick fields off. So overall, nothing. Literally not a single takeaway from the Bears offense in this game. I think I just heard you say that the Bears' best play on offense was an interception. It was a DPI that they got called. That's how poor it was. And clearly, if you look at the box score, it trickles down. Allen Robinson now led the team in targets. Good for him. But now this season has 21 targets for 86 receiving yards. Had he not scored in one of these opening games, it would be even more of a disastrous start to his season. The good news is... The Lions are next week, and so we still have faith. As we talked about in the preview show midweek, we were picking up Justin Fields no matter whether he was starting him or not because we knew the Lions waited for them in week four. But if Robinson and Fields can't turn in a good game in week four, especially Robinson, then against the Lions, we genuinely have to start worrying about Robinson's outlook for the rest of the season. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't panic. You know, Just remember how we felt about the, the Packers You know, in week one. Look terrible against the Saints. Then they got the Lions, and the Lions are the ultimate get-right spot. Although the Ravens didn't play that well against them. Although, then again, Marquise Brown dropped everything that was thrown to him, so it would look quite different if he hadn't. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I think you stick with uh, with Fields. Let's see how he looks against the Lions. David Montgomery seems like he had total control of the backfield here. Montgomery now the past two weeks, because remember in week one, he did come off the field for a couple of possessions. And we thought, okay, that's why he split routes 20 each with Damian Williams. That's why Williams had more of a role than we thought. And now we see over the past two games with Montgomery basically being a full-time player, he has handled 35 of their 39 backfield touches in that span, including all 12 of the backfield touches, all four of the backfield targets in this game in particular. So I know it did not go well, but if you're trying to have positive spin from it, like that's what you take away 100% of the team's opportunities in a game that Damian Williams was available in. Okay, that's nice at least. What about on the Browns side? Odell Beckham was the big headline. He returned, and it seems like he had a pretty decent game. He went 5 for 77 on nine targets. What did he look like? They fed him early and often. First passing play was actually to him. And if you didn't know he was injured, he was just a stranger dropping down from space to watch a football game. You would have never have known he was injured to begin with. Uh, got him involved on an end around early as well. Also a deep downfield target inside the five that he caught, but it was out of bounds because it was barely along the sideline. So overall, not scared in the way they used him, played over 50 of 81 snaps. I believe he finished with 52, which of course are the unofficial pro football focus numbers. We'll have the pro football reference numbers in the morning, but yeah, heavily involved clearly as the team's number one wide receiver. Since again, he is getting no help behind him and Donovan people's Jones who had two catches, two good catches too, that he had to spin around and tiptoe along the sideline, but still just two targets. And then uh, Anthony Schwartz, of course, coming up blank, and Rashad Higgins also having two catches. So this is very clearly Beckham's receiving corpse to have. With the backfield here, 
you've got you know a, a game script where you would expect maybe to see a really big Nick Chubb game. He does get 22 carries, goes 84 yards. But Kareem Hunt, really the story here, he had a touchdown, 81 yards on the ground. He also had 74 yards through the air. How was this usage breaking out? Was was Hunt kind of dominating in garbage time, or was this a, a true split throughout? I mean, we know it's a bit of a committee, but definitely leaned Hunt here. Chubb had 37 rushing yards in the first half. He was just the less ineffective of the two. Uh, Hunt had five of his six catches in the first half, was the much more explosive runner, and that's just sort of how it worked out. Chubb did out-touch Hunt 22-16 to 16 on the day, but Hunt still had all six of the teams or all seven of the team's backfield targets, all six of the backfield catches, whereas Chubb wasn't targeted at all. And like you said, was just the the less ineffective player on the day. So I still think it's a game of whack-a-mole. Like you can't really predict how it's going to go, but we know that Hunt, of course, as one of the best running backs in the league, who just happened to end up on a different team for another situation altogether. Uh, when he gets these chances, we know how good of a player he is. Even his 29-yard touchdown run was a broken tackle in the backfield of a pass rusher coming on. And then he dashes out 20 yards deep and then sidesteps a cornerback with ease and has that contact balance that Kamara does so well. And then just rushes forward because he's awesome. So I don't think it's anything that can help us predict, but you know, if for whatever reason, now the target tree is whittled where it's more hunt than Chubb by quite a bit, that would make it easier. But again, it's probably just a one game anomaly and a blowout. Demetric Felton got three targets. Is he a running back that we should be worried about for, you know, stealing some of those, the targets that maybe Chubb could get and Hunt, you know, is in line for, or is he basically operating out of the slot? They did have a concerted game plan for him, and it started last week, actually. And in this one, his line would have been better because the one knock you can have on the Browns today is that Baker Mayfield was off. Uh, He missed two touchdown passes, one to Harrison Bryant, who has an egg in the box score, but ran himself wide open in the end zone at one point, and Baker just missed. He just sailed the ball. And same thing for Felton, who they got matched up intelligently on Roquan Smith for a one-on-one spot out of the backfield, and again, Mayfield just missed him over the top. So two errant throws that should have been touchdowns, but overall, it does seem like they are sprinkling in Felton more and more. Now, everything in this offense, three tight ends, Uh, three wide receivers, even though one is usable, two running backs, everything is so spread out. I do wonder if Felton can even provide value in deep leagues since he's competing with seven or eight receivers constantly. But if this is something that is a trend that begins to get him more usage, then sure, we should monitor it at least. Yeah, worth keeping an eye on. Let's move to the the second game you did for us, the Raiders defeating the Dolphins 31-28 to in overtime. Uh, how did this game go down? It sounds like it, it got more interesting as it went along. Car open with a pick six on the team's second possession. Raiders then, or Dolphins then drive again in the first quarter, go up 14-0. All of a sudden, the Raiders rattle off 25 unanswered points, and then the Dolphins come storming back, essentially in the fourth quarter, until their very last drive with eight seconds left. On fourth down, jo- Jacoby Brissett, who was the dump-off king, and I don't know whether to attribute that to him or just of how poor this offensive line has continued to play through three weeks. But overall, just dumping the ball up as much as possible, even not really getting Will Fuller involved downfield for one play that he dropped, but also Brissett threw it into a traffic jam that Will Fuller really had to take a hard hit to come down with if he had any chance of catching it. But overall, Brissett ran that in on fourth down with eight seconds left. Uh 
found Will Fuller for a sliding two-point conversion to send it into overtime, and then both teams drive the field in overtime once, kick field goals, and then the Raiders storm back due to Carr again, by the way. Carr was good yet again. His third consecutive game already this year with at least 380 yards and multiple touchdown passes. Also now with the primetime games pending, this would be his seventh top 12 performance in his last seven games. So a nice little streak he has going overall. But the way it worked out on offense for this team without Josh Jacobs was a switch to Peyton Barber, who I don't know why or how, but looked spry and actually showed Le'Veon Bell like patience in letting the offensive line create gaps for him. And I'm not kidding. I don't know how it happened or why he looked so good. Maybe the Dolphins tackling is all it was. (laughs) But he had second and third level burst out of nowhere, even taking over, this is probably the biggest note, even taking over the third down roll from Kenyon Drake, the league's highest paid backup, because John Gruden after the game, and I know you're living in an alternate Rosario Jerry world right now, but John Gruden said after the game that Barber doesn't blow passing assignments, so he did, they started using him on every single down, and that's why he had 26 touches. He had six targets all the afternoon, not to go along with his team high, 23 carries, giving him 36 carries for Josh Jacobs in the past two weeks. Something odd is happening right now, Pat. And it involves, for whatever reason, a lot of Peyton Barber in our life. I was expecting Peyton Barber to have the Le'Veon Bell patience of sitting around waiting for his phone to ring (laughs) from an NFL team to call. Not patience like vintage Le'Veon Bell with the Steelers and then turning into a three-down back. Like, what? I still still get the numbers, like, confused on the back of players' jerseys. And so, I swear to you, the first couple carries, I thought it was Kenyon Drake. And then I looked up, and it's like, oh, no, that's actually Barber. What is going on here? And he just looked like that (laughs) consistently throughout the game, even in overtime, going for a 27-yard run on that final possession, having four carries for 40 yards, including that 27-yard run, to put the team in position for their game-winning field goal try. Uh, Also set up by the weird receiving usage that I know we're about to get to because Brian Edwards is basically the most impressive, unusable wide receiver in all of fantasy football. Um, Yet again, just one catch going into overtime. And on the two final possessions they had an extra time, 132-yard bomb, 134-yard reception. So otherwise, basically not a usable piece, just like week one, when he had also had uh, matched his career high in targets with five, unusable until his receptions in overtime. So they really go to him when it counts, but it's not like his usage is growing at all. He's just still out there and barely being used, whereas they continue to use Henry Ruggs because Henry Ruggs looks amazing. And I don't know what happened last year and what happened over the offseason to allow them to start using him downfield as well as shallow. But even contested catches in this game, if you go back and watch them, are extremely impressive and closer to what we saw at Alabama and what we know made him the top receiver drafted in last year's elite class. So if anything, we should continue getting high on Henry Ruggs. That's really important context because uh, Edwards had more yards in this game, 89 to 78. but and, And I caught some of this overtime, and it looked like they were just going to Edwards, you know, Every time I, you know, saw them throwing, it seemed like they were going to Edwards, but but clearly Ruggs is is the number one guy here still. Yes, Ruggs still very clearly the guy here, even though we know that Darren Waller is actually the number one, and Hunter Renfro will continue siphoning probably a team high in targets, no matter Ruggs and Edwards' usage. So very spread out target tree, uh, a very wild offense altogether. That I guess we have to consider Carr a low end fringe QB one end moving forward, even though next week's 
test on the road. Well, not really on the road, same area, but against the Chargers will will actually validate that opinion. We're going to see him in a true test since they're more of a run funnel that you can't quite pass on. Anything else on the Miami side that, that we should touch on? Um, it seems like Gaskin, you know, was the lead back here, but Malcolm Brown was the one who got in the end zone. Uh, seven for 31 compared to 13 for 65 on the ground for Gaskin. Um, you mentioned uh, Fuller not having a huge day. Waddle, I'm assuming, with his 12 receptions for, for 58 yards was really benefiting from those dump-offs. But anything else on Miami? And now Waddle, the past two weeks from Jacoby Brissett, has 21 targets, just five yards per target. Basically the opposite. So just one big bizarro Jerry game, actually. The opposite of how he was used in college as well as a, an explosive downfield receiver who averaged three catches per game. So he has become... Jarvis Landry 2.0 now from Jacoby Brissett. And you would like to see Brissett open up the offense more and throw downfield. The issue is, even if he wants to, I don't think we should believe it's going to happen given the woes of this offensive line. Uh, We're going to see that probably against the Colts next week because if the Colts can get a pass rush on this offensive line and threaten Brissett, then we have to, then we have to have issues with against every defense moving forward. But in PPR leagues, 13 targets, 12 catches, 58 yards. You're still taking those points for Waddle. For sure. And I was actually encouraged to see that they scored 28 points after what we saw last week. So um, I think Waddle looks pretty interesting. You know, Jarvis Landry, I believe, was a a top 10 wide receiver, maybe even a top five wide receiver in his Miami days. So uh, those those catches count. But And monitoring Jasicki as well, who... 12 targets, 10 catches, 86 yards, had a big 20-plus yard catch um, in the fourth quarter. So I don't know why it suddenly happened with Will Fuller in the lineup. Uh, I just wonder if the target share is going to stick around or if he continues to be more of a deep threat with Will Fuller, but definitely monitoring at least. Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much, Dale. We'll talk next week. The Bills defeated the Washington football team 43-21 to in a game where Josh Allen and the Bills look like we expected them to look to start the season. It looked like the 2020 version of the Bills. Josh Allen looked very comfortable. He was under pressure for a decent amount of this game, but that did not seem to bother him. He hung in there, made some nice throws when he was about to get hit. He had some really nice scramble throws. One of those was a scramble drill touchdown to Emmanuel Sanders. He and Emmanuel Sanders looked pretty in sync, especially early in the game. He was going to Sanders on some plays were helping move the chains, and then he found Sanders again in the end zone, in the back corner of the end zone, um, where it looked like a miscommunication between the cornerback and the safety in terms of who was supposed to be picking up Sanders, Sanders wide open in the back corner. And overall, I would say the Washington secondary was kind of a story here where, you know, they're getting pressure on Allen, but the secondary had struggled coming into the game and does appear to be a weak spot for this defense where Allen at times was kind of able just to play pitch and catch with his receivers. The exception to that is probably Stefan Diggs, who had an okay game going 6 for 62 here, but there were several plays where he did not connect with Allen. One was a back shoulder throw in Allen's mind that Diggs kept running on. And then there were a couple deep shots that Diggs and Allen were not able to connect on deep. So when they get a little bit more in sync, I think there's going to be some really big days for Stefan Diggs. A little bit left on the table here, though. Cole Beasley had a really nice game as well. He went 11 for 98. 
uh, here and just kind of that classic Cole Beasley move the chains short to intermediate over the middle type of targets um, that we're used to seeing um, and Allen able to get the ball out quickly on, on some of these throws with pressure finding Beasley so nice day for him Dawson Knox also involved in this game got in the end zone he went four for 49 here nothing crazy but um, you know definitely starting to see a little bit more involvement from him Gabriel Davis pretty quiet only one for 23 and that came pretty early in the game in the backfield Zach Moss out rushed Devin Singletary 13 to 11 he had more rushing yards 60 to 26 he had more receptions three to one and he had more receiving yards 31 to zero and he also scored a receiving touchdown while Devin Singletary did not get in the end zone Devin Singletary did have a reception but it was a zero yard fourth down attempt where they were stopped short so overall, pretty nice game for Moss, who also led in snaps, 56% to 43%. However, when the game was completely out of hand and Mitch Trubisky was under center, Zach Moss was in the game. Devin Singletary started this game. Zach Moss came in on the second series. Uh, I still think this is Singletary in the 1A role to Moss in a 1B role. Uh, this is definitely still a committee. Moss had a nice game, took advantage of a of a game script that you know the Bills were way ahead in. So that was nice to see. But at the same time, they were really kind of rotating and splitting work here. Um, and I think that Singletary probably the better bet going forward, even still, unless we hear um, you know something meaningful out of the Bills coaches that they're going to be moving a little bit toward Moss after this performance. But for now. I think this game didn't really change that much. Isaiah McKenzie uh, listed as a wide receiver, but he was mixing in in the backfield, getting some kind of gadget-type plays, um, you know, some receiving work out of the backfield. So something to keep an eye on. Uh, if his role increases, it could further complicate this backfield situation. On the Washington side of things, Taylor Heineke definitely has some exciting elements to his game he had a really nice rushing touchdown in this game i should also mention allen uh, rushed for a touchdown as well on the bill's side but heineke's rushing touchdown was way more impressive where he got around the corner it looked like the type of thing where maybe he gets one or two yards but instead he's able to get around the corner and then dive for the pylon scores um, he showed some real athleticism on that play but he also does some really kind of head-scratching stuff where he threw into a huge crowd later in the game uh, that was intercepted. Uh, you know, probably two different Bills defenders could have intercepted the ball. He also uh, threw another interception that was called back due to a defensive penalty, and he had a third interception on the day. So two official interceptions with one called back. He was locking on to Terry McLaurin, for, uh, for a number of throws, just, you know, clearly just staring down McLaurin from the moment the ball is snapped to the moment he throws. He missed some obvious checkdowns where he just sort of stares at the at the checkdown running back, pats the ball a couple times, and then runs uh, for a yard or two instead. Um, so he's, you know, the decision-making is, you know, sometimes questionable. Um, he had another throw where he was beyond the, the line of scrimmage, like clearly beyond the line of scrimmage. Through it was a nice throw to Logan Thomas down the middle of the field, but you know that's a penalty. So um, overall, it's I think he's just going to be kind of that guy. He's going to do some exciting stuff. He's going to do some really head scratching, frustrating stuff. Antonio Gibson in this game did not get the first carry, 
is one of the bigger headlines here. J.D. McKissick was in for the first series, got the first carry of this game. J.D. McKissick also worked in uh, on some second downs um, where you know Gibson would come in for first down and then leave the field. So McKissick's role was bigger here than you know we've seen, uh, where he had 46% of the snaps to Gibson's 57%. On the other hand, this was a game script where you would think maybe we would see more McKissick than Gibson, and Gibson did still lead the backfield. Gibson did have a 73-yard reception that he scored on. It was very impressive, um, but he then also dropped a very bad drop uh, near the goal line on what probably would have been a touchdown if he had just caught the ball. So that was pretty tough to see. And then those were his only two targets. So he wasn't really involved. He's not getting really any check down work. The the reception where uh, the, the target that he should have caught for a, a touchdown looked to be kind of more of a designed route rather than a check down option. So um, if the play calls for Gibson to get the ball, he'll get the ball. But in this game, he didn't see any additional receiving work, which is a bit of a concern. Uh, McLaurin had uh, seven targets, four for 62. The offense overall was struggling. He's still definitely the go-to guy here, but you know we're not, we're not seeing the, the offense move the ball very consistently here. Logan Thomas went four for 42. He got in the end zone pretty late. He also lost a fumble. The ball got punched out as he was going to the ground. Nothing that he really did wrong there. Um, but kind of a kind of a garbage time touchdown that he got uh, to help save his day. And then at the very end of the game, we were seeing Cam Sims uh, playing on the outside instead of Deami Brown. So something to keep an eye on there. Deami Brown may have lost that outside role to Cam Sims for the time being, at least. Uh, Deami Brown got a couple of targets. One was just a pure Prairie Yards target where he was covered well the ball was way out in front so nothing really to those air yards he had no chance to catch the ball um, he also had a, an end around run that was a negative four yard loss so he's having trouble getting anything going so we would make sense that the team might be interested in getting cam sims out there a little bit more he had one for 15 on two targets um, but that'll do it for the washington and bills game the Titans defeated the Colts 25-16. to Rivers McCown, the Colts are now 0-3 on the season. Um, the Titans are maybe coming back to life after a really rough week one. What, what was this game like? If you've ever watched a bad quarterback play, then you have watched Carson Wentz try to play with two ankles that are busted up to some extent. He could not move at all. Uh, he got hit 10 times, uh, took two sacks. Um, and he pretty much single-handedly was the reason that the Colts had no chance to come back to win this game because the Titans kept trying to fumble it back to them. And the Colts were like, no, that's okay, actually. I'm just going to use Carson Wentz, and we'll see what happens. And it... Yeah, I can't, can't speak well to Jacob Eason um, if that's the case, that they were just keeping Wentz out there. Um Wentz, by the way, uh, our research team tells me is now three eleven and one since the tar start of the twenty twenty season. Last win was in November twenty twenty versus Dallas. So, been a rough stretch here for Wentz. Obviously, battling injuries um, with his receivers. We did see Michael Pittman here with twelve targets, six for sixty eight. He also had a very nice week too. Is it fair to say he's the clear wide receiver one here now in Indianapolis? Well, for as long as T.Y. Hilton's out, for sure. Um, Pittman had a what would have been a touchdown catch 
uh, but Wentz kind of overthrew it in the end zone, but it was wide open. He beat his man cleanly. It all looked really good. I think you can kind of bank on, you know, wide receiver three stuff until Hilton gets back at the very least. What about the backfield where uh, Naheem Hines scores a rushing touchdown? Uh, Jonathan Taylor had 10 for 64, averages 6.4 yards per carry. Pretty solid considering the state of the offense. Uh, Marlon Mack was a healthy scratch in this game, so it really was just these two guys. But um, what was the split like? How was it that Hines was the one who scored the rushing touchdown? Well, the weird thing about that is that Hines got four red zone carries to Taylor's one. And Hines got every single goal-to-go carry. So that is alarming if you are a, a Taylor uh, a Taylor haver in your league, for sure. Um, Taylor didn't play bad at all. He definitely ran well. Uh, I don't I, I can't understand why the Colts didn't use him more. Watching this game, it just seemed like the easy, obvious thing, and they just couldn't do the easy, obvious thing. That is odd, and I'm, you know, I'm sure he'll get his share of goal line carries, Taylor. But that really can't happen, especially when you're already dealing with, you know, the overall offense being being pretty poor. So that's that's definitely something to monitor going forward. Moving to the Titans side, Derrick Henry had another really nice game: 28 rushes for 113 yards, but he did not score a touchdown. He also got three targets three receptions for 31 yards. So he's continuing to be used as a receiver, which is one of the biggest stories of the 2021 season for fantasy purposes. What was that receiving usage like? Were they throwing him screens or those dump offs? Uh, they were, they were, there was like one wide receiver kind of wide receiver split out screen where uh, I think it was so one of the course cornerbacks just like gave him at least eight yards of, of off coverage. And they were like, okay, fine. We'll let, we'll let Derek Henry run you over. Sure. That'll work for us. <laughs> And that's kind of exactly how it happened. Um, Henry, you know, as always, punishing runner, uh, ran over Darius Leonard once. Um, just just another solid all-around game. The only problem that he had was that the Titans kept turning the ball over in Colts territory. Gotcha. And then A.J. Brown um, got hurt in this game. How much of it did he even play? He was on the first two drives. Uh, he's, he, he got his hamstring injury going long on the, the a, a third and long at the very end of that second drive. And, and he pulled up kind of limping a little bit and then went off. Gotcha. And then you mentioning these turnovers. Were those, uh, Ryan Tannehill had two interceptions. Um, we had a fumble lost here um, as well. What, how, what were the interceptions like? Were those really bad throws, kind of fluky? Uh, one of them was a little awkward. It was Tannehill threw it, and it looked like it landed right in Darius Leonard's breadbasket almost. Like there had to be some kind of miscommunication on that play or something. Uh, and then the other one was a ball that popped out of Chester Rogers' hands uh, right up into a uh, Colts defender. So not that terrible interceptions by any means. And then the other thing they did was uh, Nick Westbrook-Akine, who was the leading receiver for the Titans, uh, fumbled in the red zone once he got a ball. So. How did Julio Jones look in this one? <laughs> I mean, he looked fine until they pulled him out of the game in the middle of the third quarter for what we can describe as absolutely no reason. Uh, they didn't talk about uh, – they didn't give him, like, an injury designation. Uh, Mike Fable kind of played off at the end of the in his press conference and as like a, oh, well, he was being load managed and uh, kind of hinted at, like, his blocking not being good. It was very bizarre. It, it was something that threw up some alarm flags for me for sure. Okay, so he didn't play 
a whole game here, and it's unclear why. I didn't realize that. So that's something we definitely want to keep an eye on this week, if that's if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was going pretty well, and then he was just hanging out with Bud Dupree with his helmet off for most of the third and fourth quarter. It was very bizarre. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's very important context. I think uh, we can leave it there. But Rivers, thanks so much for uh, for joining me, and we'll talk next week. All right. Thanks. All right, that'll do it for a Good Football Show's recap show of week three. Make sure to check out all of our other shows. We've got seven shows a week right now. We've got our Monday waiver wire show that I do with John Daigle. That goes live on YouTube at halftime of the Monday Night Football game. It'll also hit your podcast feeds. We've got the Tuesday show with Pat Doherty and Denny Carter. We've got a two-part preview that goes Wednesday and Thursdays that previews the slate for the upcoming week. We've got the Friday show with uh, Denny Carter, Kyle Dvorak, and John Daigle uh, looking at DFS. Uh, we've got our Sunday preview show in the morning before the, sun- the Sunday uh, games begin. And then, of course, the recap show. So you got all the all these excellent shows. Please subscribe on YouTube. Please uh, hit the thumbs up there. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That also really helps. I'll also plug, if you're looking for something to help preview next week, check out the column that I've been putting out called Friday walkthrough, which which drops on Fridays, and it's a stats-based preview column. And a lot of the things that I was mentioning, you know, you know, I thought this might happen, I thought that might happen. That's coming from the the research and the work that I'm putting into that column. And I think it's a very helpful way to kind of get ready for whatever the type of fantasy you're playing, DFS, season long, whatever you're doing. It's kind of an overarching overarching view of the upcoming uh, slate of games. So check that out, and uh, we will see you back here next week. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.